We're excited that you're here today, and it's Christmas time. We start the Christmas season. How hard is that to believe? I mean, how fast did this year go? Is it just me, or are they like you blink and, and another year has passed? Well, it's Christmas, and, and so I want to return to a very familiar Christmas passage today. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public dis- Wait a minute. You know the story. I don't need to read this story to you. I mean, how many of you know the Christmas story, right? I mean, all of us know the Christmas story. I thought about that in preparation for this month. Do you write, this is my 21st Christmas with you. You wonderful people. I love you to death. My 21st, and I'm thinking, I don't have anything to say. The Christmas story doesn't change. The Easter story doesn't change. What can we possibly talk about? And I took it to the Lord. I said, Lord, I said, I don't want to be clever. I don't want to do it. But what do you want me this month to share with your people? Because not my people, they're your people. And I was struggling with it. And all of a sudden, Boom, the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, put this thought in my mind. We're going to talk about Christmas tidbits this Christmas. Not going to go through the familiar story that you know. We'll have parts of it. But what I want to do is is look at some tidbits. Now, what's a tidbit? Well, Webster says a tidbit is a choice, tasty morsel of food or information. And so I want to look at some things this Christmas season that we tend not to look at when we go over the, the Christmas story. Nothing wrong with that, and I hope you will. Before we open Christmas presents at our house, we sit down and we read the Christmas story from the book of Luke. And and that's an important part of Christmas, and I hope that you'll include that story too. But what I want to share with you over the next three weeks are some Christmas tidbits, some choice morsels of food that you probably wouldn't think about during the Christmas season. Today, I want to talk about the road to Christmas. And when I speak about the road to Christmas, I'm talking about the genealogical road. When we get to Matthew and we get to Luke, we see two genealogies. In Matthew, it says, Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on and on and on. And I really debated about reading that genealogy to you, but I decided not to for two reasons. Number one, because it's long and it would take a lot of time. But number two is because I was afraid I couldn't pronounce some of the names, you know. But anyhow, there's two genealogies. One is in the book of Matthew. One is in the book of Luke. And if you would really note, and we don't, because usually when we get to the Bible and we're looking at the the Gospels and we get to these genealogies, what do we do? Man, we're done with that. Let's let's get to the meat, right? Let's get past all these names. Let's, let's, Let's talk about something that matters. But the genealogies are very important. The one in Matthew traces Jesus's genealogy through Joseph, his father. And the one in Luke traces his genealogy through Mary, his mother. Both of them give credence to the fact that Jesus was in the right genealogical line to be declared the Messiah of Israel. And so they're both very, very important. Matthew's gospel is written specifically to the Jewish population. Matthew, when when God inspired him through the Holy Spirit to write that, it was especially to be circulated among Jewish people because it contains many Jewish customs and traditions that only Jewish people would immediately focus in on. 
Uh, the other gospels were written to other specific groups. John, the final gospel, was a universal gospel. It's for all humanity. And so, in the very beginning, from the very start, and it would be very important to Jewish people now when we're talking about Messiah, that the Bible provides a genealogy of Jesus. And so this is our tidbit today. So in verse 2, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, let's go back. Who are these people? And you say, well, we know who they are. Well, Abraham, he's that one that God blessed among all men of the earth, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the, of the nation of Israel, the, the man that God appeared to and said, I'm going to bless you, and, and those who bless you, I'm going to bless, and those who curse you, I'm going to curse, and I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abram, what a wonderful, wonderful Bible character that we refer to over and over again. But Abraham had a dark side to himself too. Remember Abraham, because of a famine, he and Sarah, his wife, were forced to flee down into Egypt. And when he went down to Egypt, Abraham says this to Sarah. He says, listen, he says, listen, you are a good-looking woman. You're a hottie. And we get down there, and these Egyptians, they're going to notice how beautiful you are. And so they're going to want to kill me to take you. So here's what we're going to do. You tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. And that way they'll spare my life. So they get down into Egypt, and guess what? The attendants of Pharaoh notice how beautiful she is. And they reported to Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes Sarah, his wife, uh, Abraham's wife, into his own house as his wife. And there's nothing in the Bible in this particular instance that says that he did not consummate that relationship. And so here Abraham, in fear of his own life, gives up his own wife. Now, if that's not bad enough, he did it twice. God brought a plague upon Pharaoh and his household, and Pharaoh finally discovered what happened. He brought Abraham and said, what in the world are you thinking, man? He said, why did you do this to me? And so he kicked him out of Egypt with all the belongings, because Pharaoh, because he had taken Sarah's wife, not knowing it was Abraham's wife, had given him donkeys and cattle and sheep and all these riches as, as, as a dowry for her. He does it again later with King Abimelech. Only this time, Scripture clearly says, before he had any relationships with her, God revealed in a vision, in a dream, that she was married. The same thing happened again. Then don't forget, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Don't forget that whole questionable story. Remember how God had promised Abraham and, and Sarah that they would have a son, and through that son, the Abrahamic covenant that God had made would be passed on? Well, you remember how they got impatient, and so one day Sarah comes to him and says, listen, you know, I'm getting old, we're not going to have any babies, but you need to have a child. So she brings in her maidservant, Hagar, and Abraham says, now wait a minute, let me get this right, you want me to sleep with the maid, is that right? And she goes, yeah, and so he does, and they have a child named Ishmael. And you remember now, the whole issue... That, that we deal with today between Christianity and Islam all comes from that terrible decision. Because Ishmael, who's thrown out, later becomes the father of those we know today to, to, to be the Arabs or, 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 or those who embrace Islam. And of course, Isaac, whose son, his son came later, became 
the, the next leader of the, of the Hebrew people, of the Jewish people. And so Abram's a great guy, but he's got some dark issues in his life. Then we see that, that Isaac is the father of Jacob. Now, Jacob is an amazing biblical character because he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is such an amazing Bible character that God ultimately changes his name from Jacob to what? Do you remember? Israel. That's where they got the name of the country. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and that's the identity now that the new nation has under the leadership of 12 tribes who are his, his, his sons. But remember, Jacob was also the great deceiver. He's the one who conspired with his mom, Rebecca to trick Isaac into giving him the birthright instead of his older brother, Esau. Now, remember, Esau had sold his birthright, and so there was some legitimacy to this trickery. But they used deceit instead of trusting God, and they tricked Isaac into giving Jacob the birthright. And that caused all kinds of chaos. And ultimately, the descendants of Esau became the enemies of Israel. Then we see that Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. Again, the 12 brothers. Remember, the second youngest of those brothers was a guy named who? Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph, how his brothers, Judah and his brothers, sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him, but Judah steps forth as one of the oldest brothers, and he says, he says, nah, we can't kill him. He's our brother after all. Well, let's make some money on the deal then. So they sold him to an Egyptian caravan coming through. Joseph then is taken down to Egypt and sold as a slave into the house of Potiphar. Now, we know how that story later turns on, but Judah and the brothers, they gave up their own brother and lied to their father that an animal had killed him. Then we see that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, here, something very, very interesting happens. A couple things. Number one, a woman's name is included in the genealogy. Never happens. Women in that day were not considered important enough to be included in such important legal matters as genealogies, especially the genealogy of Messiah. And so now a woman is mentioned. We're going to meet two more in a second. But this is Judah, the father of Perez and Terah, whose mother was Tamar. There's two Tamars mentioned in the Bible. One was one of the daughters of, of, of David. And, and remember, she was raped by one of her own uh, brothers. And Absalom avenged her death, and that was a whole mess. But this is a different Tamar. When Judah, after they had the whole thing with Joseph and sold his brother into slavery, he split off from his brothers. And he ended up taking a Canaanite woman, who is unidentified in the Bible, her name, as his wife. And she gives him quick, very quickly, three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, he goes out for his oldest son, Ur, and he secures a wife. All marriages were arranged in that day. And her name was Tamar. Now, Tamar came together and was married to Ur, the oldest son. But Ur was evil, and he did wicked. And one of the things that he did wicked was that when they came together, as husbands and wives do, and they were in, in the act, well, he would not 
fulfill the act. Instead, he would spill his seed on the ground. And that happened over and over again. God got angry with that, so God took his life. Well, in the, the Jewish tradition, if there was a brother, that brother then was expected to take that woman, that widow, as his wife so that his brother's name could continue and so that there would be someone to share his brother's portion of the inheritance. So Judah insisted that Onan, the second in the line of brothers, take Tamar as his wife, and he does. Well, he does the same thing his older brother Ur does. Spills his seed on the ground continually. Has no problem in, in delighting in the act. And God then takes his life too. Well, by the time these two brothers die, Sheila is too young to get married. His youngest son. And so he says to Tamar, he says, all right, you go back to your father's house. And when Sheila is old enough, then I'll call you back and, and he will become your husband then. And you can have offspring through him. Well, as the account goes, when Selah grew old enough, Tamar never heard from Judah. He didn't fulfill that promise. And so Tamar now, she presents herself, she dresses up like a prostitute and sits at the city gate. And one day when Judah comes along, she entices Judah and brings him in, him thinking she's a prostitute when really she's his daughter-in-law by two sons and supposed to be by the third son. Well, they go in and they consummate the act, but he has not enough money. And so she demands that he leaves his ring, his signet ring, and his staff. Well, ultimately, she gets pregnant during this time, and she gives birth to twins who are Perez and Zerah. And so this whole sordid story kind of comes to play then we go on, and it says, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, once again, we see another woman in a genealogy, which is really, I mean, the Jewish people are going to go, what, 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 what's this? You know, and so Rahab. Now, if you do the math, Rahab cannot be the the actual mother of Boaz, because Rahab is there speaking of the prostitute Rahab who helped the spies of Israel when they were coming back into the promised land. But it's not uncommon, biblically, just so you know, someone says, well, see, the Bible has an error. No, the, the Bible sometimes skips names. But the point was, they're wanting us to know that Boaz, who is in the line of Jesus, actually is part of the protege of Rahab, a harlot. Then it goes on to say, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, remember, we talked about Ruth in the summertime when we did our kids' stuff for adults. And Ruth was a what? Was a Moabite. The Jews hated the Moabites. They were an unclean people. Remember, the Moabites were the descendants of one of Lot's daughters who Lot had impregnated. He had two sons, Amon. Ammon and, and Moab. One became the head of the Ammonites, the other became of the Moabites. And they were cursed by God. And so these folks are in the genealogy of Jesus. 
Then it says, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of King David. Okay, finally, we we hit some gold here because now we're King David. And this is really important because Scripture had declared, and the prophets of God in the Old Testament had declared, that Messiah would come from the direct line of David, King David. Had to be one of his, his successors, one Someone in his genealogy. And so we know David. Oh, David, man. He's like one of our favorite Bible characters. David, the slayer of Goliath. The one who killed a lion and a bear as a shepherd. The the great harpist and the great warrior king of Israel who took the kingdom from Saul. But remember, David was also an adulterer. One night, looking over the balcony of his palace, he looked down in the courtyard, and he sees a woman taking a bath. And he sends for that woman to be brought to him. And it's not just some casual woman. It's the wife of one of the generals of his army who is off fighting a war for Israel, by the way. And so while he's deployed, David takes Bathsheba to himself to have a little bit of fun with. Only she gets pregnant. So he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah, her husband, home from the battlefield, thinking, well, after being gone from his wife so long, he's going to go in, they're going to have relations, and I'm, I'm safe, I'm cleared. Yeah, yeah, well, it's Uriah's baby. But Uriah was a man of honor. Remember when he came back home, he would not go with his wife. He said, how can I enjoy the, 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 the intimacy of my wife when my men are dying in battle? I won't do it. And they even tried to get him drunk. And even in a drunken state, he wouldn't do it. And so now David's in big trouble. So you remember the story. David writes a letter, seals it, gives it to Uriah to deliver back to the commanding general of Israel's army. And unbeknownst to Uriah, he's carrying his own death warrant. Because that letter says to the commanding general of the Israeli army, Put Uriah in the heat of the battle. Put him where the battle is the most fierce and then suddenly withdraw the other soldiers so he dies. And that's exactly what happens. So David, I mean, we love to remember the good about David. There's so much good. And even after all this happens, towards the end of David's life, God says of David, here's a man who's after my own heart. But wow, what a genealogy. Well, here's our Christmas tidbit for today. The road to Christmas was paved by the lives of broken people. You get that? The road to Christmas was paved by and through the lives of broken people. I mean, of a highly dysfunctional family. These were not choice morsels. These were people who had serious flaws and had committed serious sins. So what? Well, did you know Christmas has a sequel? I mean, all movies have a sequel, right? And I mean, how many Rocky? I was afraid eventually Rocky's going to be in the ring with a walker, you know? You know? I mean, come on, enough is enough. We had Raiders of the Lost Ark. We had another Star Wars is coming out on December 15th, by which I will go, by the way. So, I'm... <laughs> But I mean, all these sequels. Well, God has a sequel, too, in the life of, of Jesus. 
Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. That's why he came the first time. That's what his birth was all about. His birth was about him growing up and going to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It says, And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I mean, this is what it was when the, the last before his ascension up into heaven, when he's gathered with his, his apostles, remember? After he had said that they were going to be his witnesses, he began to just float up into the sky. And the apostles are looking at up in the sky. And he disappears into the clouds. And angel appears to him and said, says, why do you look up into the, the clouds? This same Jesus will come again in the same manner he has left. And so Jesus is coming again. Christmas has a sequel. This time, though, he's not coming as a little baby. We're not going to be singing away in the manger, no room for his head. This time he's coming in dramatic fashion. This time he's coming in power. This time he's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Matthew 24, 27 says, Jesus says this himself, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Mark it down. When Jesus comes again, nobody's going to miss it this time. He's coming in power. He's coming in majesty. Now, Christmas has a sequel. And the road to Christmas's sequel will be paved by the lives of broken people. Think of that again. Christmas sequel, the road to the Christmas's sequel is going to once again be paved by the lives of broken people. Now, Jesus won't be born again, so we're not looking for more parents because when he comes, he's coming back as the king of kings. But God has commissioned his children to be the heralds of the coming of Christmas sequel. James 2.5, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who loved him? James says, hey, you know who God chose to be the heralds of Christmas sequel, to be the heralds of the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ? Not the rich, not the celebrities, it says God has once again, just like he did in the first coming of Jesus, God has not chosen the celebrities, he's not chosen the royalty, he's not chosen, the, he's chosen those who in the eyes of the world are weak, insignificant, people like me. That's who God is going to use. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He has chosen the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may, what? Boast before him. Have you ever noticed that celebrities tend to boast? tend to be really into themselves, right? That's not who God needs. God needs, from the world's perspective, the common person, 
the person without name, the person without fortune. That's who God looking for to herald the coming of Jesus Christ again. 1 Corinthians 1.31 goes on to say, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, now understand, there is some room for boasting. In fact, God inspired Paul to say to the Corinthians that we need to boast. But we don't need to boast about ourselves. We need to boast about Jesus. We need to boast about the coming Savior. We need to boast about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Romans 1.16, Paul says it this way, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First, it's the opportunity for Jewish people to come to faith, and then it's the opportunity for the rest of the Gentile people of earth to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, I am God's billboard in my city. I am God's billboard in my city. Now, I'm not saying me, Pete Tokar. Yes, Pete Tokar is included in this, but you are God's billboard in your city. Say that with me. I am God's billboard in my city. Now say it with enthusiasm. I am God's billboard in my city. You are. No, not me. You don't understand. Um, yeah, I do understand. But you don't understand. I, I don't have any influence. I, 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 you're the perfect candidate because that's who God has always used. You don't understand, Pastor. You don't know the life I've lived. Yeah, I do know because we've all messed up and we've, we're all dysfunctional in some capacity. You're exactly who God's looking for to herald Christmas's sequel. You're exactly the kind of person God wants to use to announce to the world that Jesus is coming again. See, we proclaim Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Paul says, to this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. It's not that I have any special power except the power that God has given to me through the Holy Spirit who lives in me. So Paul says, we proclaim him. What our life is about is proclaiming him. And listen, it's Christmas time. This is a time of year where so many people in your workplace, so many people in your neighborhood, so many people in your immediate and extended family who are without faith will come to church because it's Christmas time. So therefore, as the old song says, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. This is our opportunity this Christmas. We who are dysfunctional, we who are marred, we who, who have, have little to offer in the eyes of the world, have everything to offer in the eyes of eternity. You are God's choice vessel to proclaim the coming of Jesus Christ. As we celebrate communion this morning, let's do so with all of this in mind. Let's do so understanding that Jesus has fulfilled his initial mission in his first coming. Jesus came and the world didn't see him. Jesus came and had a humble birth born alone. 
His first crib was a manger, a feeding trough for cattle and sheep and goats. He came in humility to die on the cross for the sins of humanity that we might not have the hope of one day being in heaven with him, but having the promise one day of eternal life with him. Our ushers, our deacons are going to come now. We're going to distribute the elements of communion. I'm going to first encourage you to take a cracker and put it on your lap and then take the tray and take a cup of juice and then pass it to your neighbor. As we receive these elements, let us be reminded these are symbolic of Jesus' first coming. And the reason, again, for his first coming was to provide the forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, Jesus, because he always lives to intercede with him. I love that last phrase. Because he, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. Do you know what Jesus has been doing every single day since he's gone back to be with his Father in heaven? Since that day when the apostles were looking up and watched him ascend up into the heavens and the angel appeared to them announcing that he'll come back again? You know what Jesus has been doing every single day since then? He sits, Scripture says, on the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for me and for you every single day. Making intercession for us. Watching us as even though most of us here today have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior and we have therefore been adopted into the family of God. John 1.12 says, Yet to as many as receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, even though that's true. We still blow it, don't we? It's so hard to, to live this Christian experience. It really is. And all of us find difficulty in some area of it. I do, you do, we all do. And so all day long, Jesus sits next to God and he says, I know they don't get it right. I know they mess up. But I died for them. And their sins are covered by my blood. And God says, I know. It's okay. Now that doesn't give us a license to sin. But it gives us grace that Jesus, when we do sins, what he does all day long and what he'll do until God sends him back the second time for Christmas sequel. It's all day long he intercedes for me and he intercedes for you. Now that may not be true for you though because that's not true for all humanity. It's only true for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal savior. John 5, 24, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. There's one stipulation, see, that we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that we believe that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. 
and that we put our faith in what he has already done. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. That's all he asks. We might think, well, why wouldn't everyone respond to that? Well, oddly, not everyone will. For some, it just sounds too simple. For some, they're too prideful. But for those who are humble, it is the path to eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe you're here today and you've not taken that step. You've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Well, here's the good news. Somehow, God brought you to the bridge today to give you that opportunity. He loves you that much. I don't know what circumstance he used. I don't know what person he might have used. But God loves you so much that he used something to get you here today. I'm going to ask us all to just bow our heads for a moment. And if you're a believer, you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that before we take of communion that we should examine ourselves and we should confess any unconfessed sin that's there. And so, believers, I'm going to give you a chance to talk to Jesus right now and confess any unconfessed sin that you have in your life so that he can intercede with the Father. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, oh, this could be the best Christmas you ever had because you can receive the greatest gift that has ever been offered, and that gift is eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, wouldn't you do it right now? Say, well, I don't know how. Well, let me help you. Now, I'm going to say a prayer, and you can use my prayer as a template, but the words aren't magical. The words aren't an incantation. They're just words I'm going to make up. But if you make these words your heart message to God, God will give you the gift of Christmas, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. I received Christ as a nine-year-old boy, and I use words something like this, God, I confess to you that I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I haven't lived life perfectly. And my sins now have separated me from you. And God, if I understand what this pastor said today, the only way that my relationship in you and with you can be restored is through putting my faith in Jesus. And so, God, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. With my mouth, I confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the only way back to you. And God, believe, search my heart and know that I believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried on the third day, rose again. And I believe that because he was willing to go to the cross, that you have given him alone the authority to forgive my sin and to give me eternal life. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to do that in my life right now. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Jesus, be my Savior. Now, Scripture declares in 1 John 5, 13, These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's God's promise. You can look up now. This was the first coming. 
On the night he was betrayed in the upper room, Jesus took bread and gave thanks, and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Sometime later in the Passover meal, Jesus also took the cup. He said, this is the future. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this also in remembrance of me. Paul later adds, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you use broken people. Thank you, God, that you use dysfunctional families to do your greatest work. We could have gone on and on through the genealogy of Jesus as, as inspired and recorded in your word. And we would have seen what we talked about today in the lives of a half dozen. We would have seen it over and over and over again. Why? Because you use broken people to proclaim eternal truths and to be part of the coming of your son. God, help us to embrace that this Christmas season. Help us not just to sing that song, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. May we be reminded all through this season and all through the year to come that I am God's billboard in my city. God, help Jesus to shine through our lives as we put you first this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.